Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, John Cofrancesco, the founder of the new artificial intelligence company, Applied AI. But first joining us is Don Burnett, the co-founder and CEO of Kodiak Robotics, an innovative Silicon Valley company that is pioneering autonomous uh, driving technologies uh, that can turn existing vehicles uh, into safe, uncrewed vehicles for both commercial and military applications. Don, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to have you on the program. It was terrific seeing you guys uh, out in sunny uh, uh, California, Northern California, uh, a couple of months ago. My pleasure to be here. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, It was terrific visiting with you guys uh, out in Silicon Valley uh, in March when we uh, visited and had a chance to see uh, your guys' uh, technology and visit with our mutual friends at uh, the Defense Innovation Unit. What is it about Kodiak Robotics, right? You launched the company, you co-founded the company a couple of years ago. What is it about how it is you guys are approaching the market and what it is you're doing that differentiates you from all the other autonomous uh, vehicle companies, specifically in the trucking sector, right? Which you would argue is the most ripe for uh, automation. And yet a lot of people haven't really seized on that idea. Absolutely. Well, it was great to have you here in the office. I always tell people that Seeing is believing. And so getting folks here in person to see and touch and feel is is really a difference maker. So it was great to have you here uh, at the office. One of the things that I really wanted to do with Kodiak is bring the technology out of the research phase. Kodiak is focused on building the Kodiak driver as a real deployable product. And This focus has really appealed to our commercial customers, but obviously it also resonates with the DOD, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, given the challenges that the defense technologies are facing in crossing that valley of death. As for our technology, it comes in both the hardware and the software components. And we've built our hardware around real-world autonomous driving needs, particularly as you think to the package and form factor of this technology. Something that we're really proud of is our sensor pods. Basically, imagine replacing the stock mirrors on a truck and adding all the sensors and capabilities that the truck is going to need to drive safely down the road. And then imagine that these systems need to be replaced or, or fixed or repaired or maintained over time. One of the challenges that we identified was that this can require significant time in the traditional sense. So there's complicated repairs that sometimes have to be made. These long-haul trucks can't afford to be down for extended periods of time. So with our sensor pod solution, you can, in less than 10 minutes, swap out a completely new pod and no special expertise is required. So this makes the hardware... Right. incredibly easy to service, incredibly easy to maintain. And, and this provides a viable path towards scalability. And I think this is one of the very unique aspects that Kodiak is bringing to the market. And we've heard glowing reviews of this 
with our commercial customers. And it's also important in a military context as well. You can imagine we can't have our military vehicles broken down on the side of the road because the autonomy system failed, right. a part needs to be replaced, et cetera. Let me take you to uh, the testing, real world testing you guys are doing uh, in Texas. And also you're sort of providing, you're looking not just in terms of selling hardware, but also doing a service model where you make those modifications and you run the trucks for an operator, right? I mean, it's a, on a per mile. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating model you guys have. First, talk to us about some of the real world testing you guys are doing in Texas, but also sort of the fundamentally different business model you guys are offering large-scale trucking operators to be able to actually rapidly scale. It's really a comprehensive solution that involves both the hardware and the software and the service model. So we have a tremendous number of fantastic partners that we've been working with out of, out of Texas. We're driving for folks in the real world, moving freight across the U.S. interstate highway system day in and day out. We recently announced a partnership with CR England and Tyson Foods. CR England is one of the largest or maybe the largest refrigerated freight carriers in the U.S. And you think about the agricultural industry, food spoilage is one of their primary concerns. And so the efficiency benefits that you get with this technology, being able to move the truck more or less 24-7 without needing to stop, without needing to worry about a driver taking a break or resting, that is a game changer for this industry. Uh, we also work with IKEA, one of the largest known brands in the world, Warner Enterprises. We've announced many partnerships over the last year, and we're driving with these folks day in and day out with our home base being in Dallas, Texas. Uh, just really quickly, because we have so much more to discuss, Don, but tell the audience a little bit about sort of the unique service model you guys are using, right? So you guys are very proprietary about the cost, but say, you know, it'll be a couple of hundred grand, you modify the vehicle for the purpose, but then it's a per mile charge for the operating fee, right? Because you guys are then operating the vehicle on behalf of the, op you know, so walk us through this sort of innovative service model and what's different about it in the industry and actually what's really not different about it in some ways. Sure. So owner operators will continue to own their vehicles and we will bring the capabilities that a driver brings today. So from that perspective, the touch points will not be all that different. But as you said, we will provide the hardware. It'll actually be less than 100,000. We, we don't know exactly where the price is going to end up, but it's going to be less than $100,000 for sure. And then we will charge a per mile fee much the way that a driver would charge a per mile fee. The difference being, imagine that you can now run your vehicle, run your asset almost 24-7 without stopping, right? Wow. That type of efficiency and that type of resiliency is going to dramatically change the way that, that fleets think about moving freight. And so in some ways, it's going to upend the market and provide capacity where capacity wasn't, wasn't readily available. You don't have to worry about driver hiring and retention. Uh, the vehicles are just always on the road. And we will provide safe and reliable driving, essentially, from point A to point B. But the, the carriers will still be responsible for all the logistics, dealing with the shippers, all the billing and that sort of thing. Uh, and you guys are using it uh, at truck stops uh, in order to sort of change payloads and do other things and have that as an intermediate distribution point, which is brilliant, right? You don't then have to worry about you know, going through, uh, you know, uh, urban areas and things like that from a safety factor, why is it important to actually keep the autonomy on roads? And what is it you guys are doing to have that fit in seamlessly? Because actually, 
you guys have had actually very few incidents without trying to jinx you at any point nor sound like <laughs> yeah. I'm part of your advertising department that's Dan's problem yeah thanks for thanks for the jinxing of that no we'll try to keep up our our very good safety record that we're very very proud of up to this point but you bring up a very good point this is why we partnered with pilot the pilot company back in 2021 they're the largest travel center provider uh, along the interstate highway system and at least in the United States and, and they provide the infrastructure access and real estate, quite frankly, that we need in order to provide launch and landing zones for these autonomous vehicles. Imagine the freight comes to those facilities. And, and there's a lot of a lot of relay relay networks that already operate operate like this today. The freight will come in, it will be dropped off, an autonomous truck will be hooked up, it will leave from that facility onto the highway, it will drive hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles down the road without stopping, pull in the, at the other side where the where the load will then be dropped off and taken the rest of the way. Um, let me uh, take you to the DIU contract. Uh, that's a seal of approval. It was in fact the DIU folks uh, who recommended, uh, who connected us. Talk a little bit about how this contract, what, what this contract means to you guys and how you are working to try to operationalize this capability for the U.S. military, which would be critical, seeing as how trucking is as big of a challenge and a problem for militaries as it is commercial business. Yeah, so this past December, we were awarded a $49.9 million contract to work with the DOD, specifically the U.S. Army, on the robotic combat vehicle program, so the RCV program. So by using autonomous vehicle systems, you can provide high, high, you know, in high risk surveillance and reconnaissance missions. You can keep troops out of harm way, right? That's the that's the goal is ultimately to get our warfighters into a position where they can be maxim, maximally capable without risking harm uh, to 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 them, you know, personally. And I I think that there's a place for autonomy in pretty much all ground vehicles across the U.S. Army and, and across all the branches of the military. I think every ground-based system should be capable of autonomous operation, and this is really the beginning of, of that process. What we're doing with the DIU and the Army in this program is to demonstrate what's possible by navigating in complex terrain, diverse conditions, uh, GPS challenged areas. One thing that folks don't quite always realize is that while we have based our system on a commercial use case, that is driving on the highway system in the US, we are also designing it with flexibility in mind. And so our system can actually drive off road, we can drive on dirt roads, we can drive on unimproved uh, environments, and, and soon we'll be demonstrating our ability to just actually drive through open fields, so to speak, right? Um, you know, completely no road environments. And this is, you know, this is part of the RCV program, but there's AT ATVS, there's OMFE, there's a lot of other programs that stand to benefit from the work that we're doing uh, with the DIU and, and the U.S. Army in this project. Um, let me ask you about access to capital. Um, that is a question that time and again comes up, right? Uh, small companies say it's of kind of tough out there. What's it like? You're a small, innovative business. You guys are growing. Um, are, do you have access to the kind of capital you need to keep growing? <laughs> well, I will say it's tough out there, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, look, the markets have definitely taken a hit. Anybody who's who's following it knows and understands, uh, at least at the macro macro level, with 
inflation, with interest rates rising, with the market in a downtrend. It's hit the private markets and it's hit the startup space pretty hard. Now, there's been a resurgence recently with all the, the new novel AI technologies that are coming out and everybody's trying to get a piece of that. And I think that also relates to a lot of the work that we've been doing. We heavily rely on and, and utilize and innovate around AI and machine learning algorithms for all the amazing things that our technology can do. And so it's it's really about finding the right pockets of capital. There are still investors that are interested in investing in small, innovative, difference-making companies like Kodiak. It's just a lot harder to find them because it's so easy for investors to say, you know, I think I'm going to pass for now. I'll pick it up back. I'll pick it back up next year. And right. it's on you as an entrepreneur to go out and find the pockets of capital. There's always those folks who are like, yes, I see the future. I see the possibility. I want to get in early. This is my opportunity. It just has become a lot more difficult to do so. Um, let me ask you one uh, last uh, question. You have been at a lot of innovative companies. You were a staff software engineer at, at Google. Um, you worked on autonomy uh, at Uber. Uh, you helped found uh, a company uh, called Auto, and, and now you're at uh, Kodiak. From your standpoint, is the department moving more quickly and adopting innovation, right? I mean, it's one thing to talk about a high theory, right, and high concept at a Washington think tank. You're actually in Silicon Valley trying to expand in the defense business while you grow your commercial business, right? How is that process going? It's an interesting one. So we've always been focused on the commercial market. In fact, most of the autonomous vehicle industry has focused on the commercial market up until this point. But there was a realization that we had a couple of years ago where we figured out that this technology can be used to not only save lives on our on our public roads, but also save the save lives of our, our men and women in uniform. And so the I would say the adoption of technology and ex, the acceleration and pay the and increase in pace of that technological progress is moving in the right direction. DIU is a perfect example of this. The adoption of dual-use technology and their reach out to dual-use companies like Kodiak makes it possible for us to take our state-of-the-art commercial technology and apply it to a government use case. This has really not been the way it worked in the past. And so, you know, it's, it's a new pioneering novel effort that I think is really going to bring tremendous amounts of benefits to the U.S. government over the next several decades if they decide to continue on the path of dual use. Having companies that can develop technology that is suitable for both a commercial use case and a government use case allows both sides to reap the benefits from each. And that, I think, is what will make it possible for companies like Kodiak to continue to support the government in a way that the government has really never had access before. So yes, um, it is improving. It is it is moving the right direction. And I think the, the future is very exciting. Uh, congratulations. Uh, Fairwinds following seas. Look forward to keeping in touch uh, and all the best. And thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And joining us now is my good friend, John Cofrancesco, the founder of Applied AI Company, a thoughtful and innovative new firm uh, looking at ways uh, to harness AI for good. John, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back. Uh, in, indeed. I want to get to some uh, cyber uh, stuff. Obviously, the administration uh, forwarded its classified uh, cyber strategy to the Hill uh, last month, or I should just say about a week and a half or so uh, ago. Uh, and we also had 
just the kind of cyber attack on Guam that uh, you and I have discussed on this program over the course of several years. But I want to start with uh, AI. We uh, last week had uh, the debt drama sort of resolve itself uh, with the president uh, signing uh, the debt deal. And you managed to actually um, create something special for lawmakers to harness AI to better understand uh, legislation and, and track legislation, which is uh, one of the things that actually uh, you and I have uh, talked about before, right? How you can harness AI to understand and to synthesize very, very complex reams of information. Talk to us a little bit about your project Cicero, what it means, how it came about, and, and how lawmakers and their staffs ended up using it. You know, sometimes the world works in funny ways. So I was out with a colleague of mine, somebody who who I really hold in high regard, and he was commenting to me that, you know, hey, we're going to get this debt ceiling bill, and we're probably not going to get any time to read it. And uh, I thought to myself as he was saying that, I was like, oh, that's a great idea. We, we can fix that problem. So over the last couple of weeks, we we put together a you know reasonably sophisticated chatbot, early days still, that would ingest an entire congressional bill, would do so with reference. So it can look at it from the perspective of a Republican or a moderate or a Democrat. And it would help you to interpret the bill. And importantly, it would give you references within the bill so that the human could go and look at it. So uh, we did release that as an as a alpha to a handful of congressional offices and uh, to a handful of lobbyists and said, hey, guys, go play with this and see if we can help you. And it, it has. They've, they were able to use the tool to to find some details in the debt ceiling bill that that otherwise would have taken them hours, perhaps a day to get to. And they were able to do that in just a, a couple of minutes. So I think, uh, you know, as part of our ongoing conversation around AI, this is really what the what the future looks like. It's AI assisting humans to do things that we otherwise couldn't do. So Tom Siebel of uh, C3AI uh, has joined us frequently on this program, was on uh, just about a week and a half ago uh, for a thoughtful discussion on what smart AI regulation looks like. You joined us about a month and a, uh, about a month and a half ago uh, as well to talk a little bit about that. Um, from Tom's standpoint, he's a little bit less worried about the catastrophic scenarios and indeed you know has a sense that look some jobs will go away, other jobs will be started. but that actually the most dangerous part of um, generative AI or large language models or the way that they will be harnessed, is actually to undermine democracy, right? For the propagation of myths and disinformation. From from your standpoint, listening to some of these uh, debates, how where where do we need to go on what smart AI uh, a smart AI regulation is? Given the Economist uh, in its issue, uh, one of its recent issues, kind of said, look, a lot of the companies want regulation because they see an arms race and they want Congress to sort of right level of the playing field. So not all of this is, is altruistic. What, what's your sense about where we are and where we're going? And more important, where we have to be to get the benefits of it without sort of managing to hamstring ourselves? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a complex question. So there's a few different things there. So first, maybe to touch on The Economist, 100% right. The reason why you're hearing the most powerful, wealthy companies in the world saying regulate, regulate, regulate is so they don't have to compete. You know, some inventions that are made really give a company a competitive advantage. They, they're able to build a technical moat, something that other companies can't cross. It gives them a defense against, you know, market competition. Some technologies, when invented, just don't give you that. And the reality is uh, the advent of these LLMs 
really don't give anybody a meaningful moat. So no big company has an advantage over really a bunch of small companies who are now producing their own LLMs. So with that in mind, you have these big companies screaming for regulation and really using scare tactics that are wholly unnecessary. The, the you know, AI is going to Terminator 2 and the world type of style stuff, principally because they want to keep folks out of the market. And, and it's nonsense. Uh, I, I think to the, to the broader point, you're-, you're I, And I should probably, point out, yeah. right, small, s- smaller guys like you are getting into this market in a way, right, given the leveling uh, nature of AI- you could be as game-changing from your perch as one of the bigger companies can be game-changing from their perch, right? I mean, not to sort of oversell what it is you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's it's certainly uh, early days for us. And we I, I didn't set out to do this to, to make a buck. I really set out to answer a buddy's question. But uh, insofar as we do monetize and the rest, yeah, absolutely. But but I think you're, you're, to your point, right, that so they would love to keep the small guys out. Small guys are jumping in left, right, and center. And for the record, the open source community is doing some really tremendous stuff that, uh, you know, again, without a meaningful business moat, without some regulatory moat, the big guys are going to have to say, uh, you know, okay, maybe we're going to have to spend some real money, get really innovative here, which is something that they're not always accustomed to doing. As it relates to the job market, listen, I, if you look at the the number of jobs the United States had and the, the orientation of those jobs in the late 40s till now, more than 70% of the jobs that existed in the 40s no longer exist. And I think we're going to look at that just at a much faster pace with this. I'm really convinced that this generative AI is, is going to have a major impact on the economy. Uh, and whether that takes place over years or decades is as yet to be seen. I suspect it'll be considerably faster than happened uh, in the last century. And, and sort of coming back to, to really my area of expertise in the cybersecurity, these tools can be used for some really negative things, but every tool can be used for some really negative things. So, so smart regulation here means Let's put in some let's put in some laws that are going to penalize people for using these tools with malice. Let's give uh, the executive branch the tools to go after folks who use these tools for malice. And, and then I think we need to sit back and watch. We're definitely at a state now where there's a lot of pressure on Capitol Hill to, to regulate, regulate, regulate. The reality is nobody on Capitol Hill could accurately define AI, or very few people on Capitol Hill could define AI. And that's not a function of their not knowing technology. That's a function of this stuff is new. So I think we should let this sort of settle out a little bit, see what happens, and then you know, be, be quick to observe, but be slow to, to legislate. And then when we legislate, let's, let's focus on the things that punishes bad guys, not businesses. Uh, let me uh, take you, uh, you know, you, you mentioned cybersecurity and, uh, you know, just about everybody has been talking about the role of AI in, in doing it. I should uh, p- p- uh, mention the kind of AI that government agencies are already using are remarkably profound, right? I mean, so people who are just like, oh, my God, you know, we're in an AI age. I'm sorry, you've been living in an AI age uh, for a long time. That's what your navigation is. That's what Siri or Alexa or, or any of these uh, tools uh, are. Um, the administration, or the Pentagon at least, uh, sent its classified cyber strategy over uh, to uh, Congress. Um, and you know there has been a little bit of reporting uh, on what that actually means uh, uh, functionally, because I think there are sort of four lines of effort on this. Kind of walk us through what 
we know about the new strategy, what it means, and, and more broadly, sort of, you know, whether or not they're on the right track as, as somebody who's been following this for a long time and, and has been in the cyber threat business for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, coming out of the White House, the cyber strategy was pretty clear. They were really just codifying, you know, basically the things that we had been largely talking about, making sure that the, the intra agency behavior was correct, right? Moving towards zero trust and things like this nature and making sure the interagency organizations were correct. So that's giving CISA certain controls, giving Cybercom certain controls and making sure that everybody was playing nice. As it relates to the rest of the world, I think you know the White House and, and now the DOD are doing the right things. They're really acknowledging that for the first time, the assets the bad guys want to get off, get after really aren't predominantly owned by the government. Right. That so if you think traditional military terms, the bad guys want to blow up a Navy ship or an Air Force plane, right? Those are government owned assets. Today, predominantly, the bad guys don't want to do that. What the bad guys want to do is they want to blow up a, you know, Lockheed factory or a chicken factory, right? Or a, you know, a a car factory, right? They want to go after things that the government doesn't explicitly own. And I think this is what, what we're seeing. Colonial pipeline, for example. Yes, exactly. Great example. So they want to go after the things that are going to disrupt America's lives. So I, I think what was made clear in, uh, what was made crystal clear in both strategies was, hey, we are going to work with our partners. It's going to be public and private partnership. I mean, thinking about the thing Cantari Marine ransomware, I mean, that was a major attack. Government doesn't own that company. Right. But the government is going to have to work with them to get the shields up. So I've been very laudatory of what the Biden administration has done there. I think uh, insofar as we can read between the lines on the defense strategy, they're getting to something that I think you and I have talked about many times is that in this case, the best offense might be the best defense. Uh, reading between the lines, what I'm what I'm interpreting is that the DOD is really going to begin to put a hammer down on, on those who would attack us. And, and that may ultimately be the thing that keeps us safe from a lot of these cyber attacks. It's very easy to let to let one of these attacks loose if you don't think you're going to get punished, if you don't think there's going to be a reprisal. Uh, I think DOD is making clear to the PRC, to Russia, North Korea, and the remainder that uh, if, if you play, uh, we're going to have something for you. And, you know, you can see that those names are called out explicitly. And you can see that they were talking about building advantages. So it isn't just enough that we can hit them back. But we want to have cyber supremacy. We want to have this idea that, well, okay, you're going to turn off one of our factories. We'll turn off all, all of yours. Uh, and that that is really what DOD is aiming for. And, and I, I got to tell you, I actually have a pretty high degree of confidence that we're going to get there. The best cyber talent in the world is predominantly here in the United States. And with our focus on it, I, I think that we're going to get to the right spot. Um, what, I, what I love is they specifically call them cyber operations forces. Um, which is uh, something uh, that is, uh, you know, important. And uh, General uh, Mark Kelly, uh, the um, uh, commander uh, of uh, the Air Combat Command, the outgoing commander of Air Combat Command, joined us on our Air Power podcast last week. And we talked about the role that General Tim Hawk, the incoming uh, NSA director, National Security Agency director, and incoming U.S. Cyber Command commander um, has done you know, at 16th Air Force within the confines of the Air Combat Command to sort of operationalize cyber and lay it in as as sort of a, a war in the warfighting continuum uh, of air power, uh, right? Uh, and and so that's basically what you're talking about is at at each level the operationalization of cyber as an integral uh, uh, warfighting domain, effectively. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this kind of coming back to the Guam attack, right? You, you didn't have to be a genius to predict that Guam was going to be attacked. It's kind of like predicting the sky is blue. You just had to look up, right? And I think, candidly, not everybody was looking up. Now they are. I think the next iteration of this, and this is probably why you're going to see this out of Air Combat Command and others, is that we know that the, that the Chinese want to want to use cyber as a weapon to prevent them from having to fight us kinetically. If they fight us kinetically, they'll lose. But if they can keep our planes on the runway, if they can keep our ships, uh, you know, at in port, then they they win. They don't have to fight. They can take Taiwan or do whatever other malicious thing they want to do. That's so you can see the nature of the attacks that they're planning, the nature of the attack they have conducted is really to that end. And, and no surprise. And I think if you're the DOD today, you're doing double, triple, quadruple checks on your electronic warfare systems, uh, which is another very likely target. You're, you're looking again at infrastructure systems, those things that are really not very sexy, not very exciting to look at. You're actually going to spend some money and go look at those things. Uh, and, and hopefully through that effort, we will get to the right level of security so that we can win in that domain. Uh, for people who've been following this program for a while, John has been joining us on a regular basis and saying, you know, this is coming, this is coming. And, and all of this stuff, you know, has been happening for some uh, time, uh, right? Um, is is what the Chinese doing basically telegraphing though, right? I mean, are, are these actual, I understand that they're probing, but the thing is we're really stepping up our game and so as opposed to not seeing this stuff, we are seeing this stuff, right? Are they basically giving more away than gaining at this point? Very hard to make that judgment. Really hard. I think only at the highest levels of the U.S. government with our best intelligence could somebody make a reasonable judgment on that. And, and even there, it's unclear that they would be right or wrong. Hopefully they will be right. The reality is that most cyber weapons are one-time use weapons. So if you really pour money into something, you can hack just about anything. But once you do it, the, the you know your opponent then figures out how to defend against it, and then that weapon's basically useless. So it is very likely that the Chinese have an arsenal of these one-time use sort of cyber wonder weapons that they are just sitting on. At the same time, it's important that they, you know, from their perspective, that they identify where those wonder weapons will have the most effect. So they're continuously probing, continuously documenting where we have vulnerabilities. So it is likely that in some office somewhere in Beijing, they have a database with a, a list of every vulnerability they have thus found, thus far found, both within the military and our government, but also within our private sector, right? Most of the assets these guys want to attack are not owned by the government. Right. So they're just sitting on those. Hopefully our team, right, is is done has done the same for them. I suspect we have. I think what you, again, taking this back to the cyber strategy and, and seeing what DOD is saying, seeing what the White House has said, has said they've acknowledged that most of these targets are not owned by the government and they're now implementing tools uh, and services actually to help the private sector uh, close up some of those vulnerabilities. I actually really need to pause here and give credit to the NSA. They have offered some free tools, free zero cost tools uh, out to industry that candidly are currently being underutilized, but they actually do exactly what we're talking about here, right? They help you, the company, right. close up your gaps. They don't report your vulnerabilities to anybody. So it's not like uh, they're going to they're gonna rat you out to your clients or anybody. They really just tell you, hey, this is what we found. You can close them up. Here's how. Uh, and, and I think that is a brilliant direction. It's actually government working. And I think the folks who are operating that at, at NSA deserve a tremendous amount of credit. John, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program and best of luck uh, to you and your team. I mean, how long before you operationalize 
write the alpha of Cicero into something that's more of a real product that I can download and use to help me read think tank reports and synthesize them more clearly. I'm intending to release a beta to everybody on Capitol Hill in about a month's time. Uh, In fact, we've put together a wait list for that beta. So if you go to mtcicero.com, Marcus Tullius, mtcicero.com, you can get on the wait list. Vago, obviously, I will make sure you have early access. (laughs) Thanks very much, man. Really appreciate it. All the best. Cheers.